You're now approaching the Game Master's Prism. The Game Master's Prism is a podcast where we look at role-playing game design from different angles. I'm your host, Richard. I'm your host, Ken. I have a great interest in old, out-of-print, and pretty weird RPGs. And I'm also very happy to talk about the classic sword and sorcery and fantasy styles of D&D or Tunnels and Trolls. I've made a study of horror role-playing games, but I'm also fascinated by the current trends and developing thoughts in independent role-playing games. Now we'll take a look at what's in the prism today. All right, welcome back to the Game Master's Prism. Uh, This week we're going to be talking about some important things, and so we are also going to demonstrate some role-playing game safety tools. Uh, So the idea behind these is that uh, not all content is right for every group, right? And so there are some groups that will want to pull a veil over particular topics. They don't want to go into them explicitly, and then they'll want to draw lines that they don't cross. And this is something that's discussed as part of the social contract. But, you know, no one can anticipate everything that's going to upset them. So that's also what the X card is for. And the X card is something that can be either physical or a concept. You put it on the table. If someone taps the X card, that means that what just happened in the game didn't happen. You back off from it and move on to a different thing. These are really useful for things like horror games, which, of course, I love. So you're probably wondering why we brought that up at the very start of the podcast. And the reason is because we're going to talk about some recent events that have come up in role-playing game spaces. And they're the kind of things that could be upsetting to people. And we don't want to catch them off guard. So we're going to talk about some unfortunate things in history, things like racism, sexism, uh, discrimination, and things relating to uh, Nazi movement. The line for this is we're not going to quote anything directly. We're not going to be using slurs, right? That's not the kind of people we are. But if you find yourself uh, feeling uncomfortable with this content or this discussion, you have the X card in this case. Feel free to stop the podcast, take a break. You don't have to come back to it. Take care of yourself. So with that out of the way, I think we can get back to the rest of the Game Master's Prism. All right. So, yeah, that's a you know, heavy start, but we, we're, we always start with what we've been playing and running and, and what are we planning for RPGs? Um, you want me to go ahead with that, Ken, or you want to go ahead? Sure thing. You can do something a little lighter. Yeah. Okay. Well, I don't know how light it's going to be because, and you wrote a similar thing here, right? Uh, what have I been playing, right? Well, I've been playing Elden Ring, which is not uh, a tabletop game. It does share some similarities with tabletop games, perhaps. Um, I know I know you're playing Elden Ring, too. I and mean, we can just do this as a, like, a, you know, we can talk about this together. Uh, right. what, do you, what do you think about Elden Ring? I mean, I think it's amazing. I'm very happy with it. Uh, we should probably talk about what is Elden Ring, I guess. Yeah. I just, so like... I just thought about that. For the few people who've managed to escape it, and uh, hats off to you. So, uh, yeah, so Elden Ring is the latest from Fun Software, the makers of Dark Souls, Demon Souls, Bloodborne, uh, Sekiro, um, the really well known, yes, Kingsfield. Yep, further back. Uh, They're well known for making punishingly difficult games that have this really strong sense of the world. And the world is usually a sad one that's getting worse, is how I would describe it. Right. And Elden Ring is the newest game they've released. It just came out uh, the end of last month, right? End of February? Yeah, I think and it was the 25th. 
Yeah, and uh, it was written by George R. R. Martin, uh, at least the backstory of it. The uh, it's like he wrote sort of like the the old like the back back backstory kind of stuff, and then the d- studio took what he wrote and said, "How did this get into the situation it's in that is bad?" Right, uh, and it and it has it's you know it's a fantasy setting. This one's a little more. In some ways, anyway, it's a little more straightforward. Like, it at certain points, at least at the beginning, it feels almost like it's a high fantasy setting, which, like, confused me. But it's not really like that. And it shares a lot of sort of, like, sword and sorcery traits and sword and sorcery uh, visual styles and stuff. Yeah, I'd say it has, like, the, the DNA of some of that, but there is usually a twist to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so you say you really like it. Uh, I really like it too. I mean, I've played like ninety hours of it. Um, I'm level ninety eight or something crazy like that. Nice. Which is not just for anybody listening. That's not like you're a max level. Like the max level, I guess, is something like seven hundred something. Not that you're really gonna get to that level unless you just stand around and grind forever. But uh, and it's intended for. Uh, you know, you can do new game plus and all this. You can play again with the same character and keep going up. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It's it's a very vast game. It's interesting how it the map gets like larger and larger as you go. I don't want to like spoil stuff really, but it gets like larger and larger as you go. Can, can, so, sort of like Dark Souls, but it's kind of different too. Yeah, and um, I'm at like 65 hours, but part of that's because my wife and I have been splitting time playing it, and so neither one of us can play it constantly. But that's been fun, too, because like one of us is like, oh, no, what's that new monster you've come across? And it's been a lot of fun to compare notes. Yeah, my friend Shane and I have been doing that. Where I've said, like, oh, I did this thing. And he was like, oh, wait, how did you do that? And I, was, oh, I went here, and I was like, I didn't know anything about the great runes. And I was like, what do you do with these? And he's like, oh, you got to go to this place. And I was like, what? I didn't know anything about that. And he was I, he was like, tell me all about this. And I was like, wow. And then I was like, oh, you can go to this other place and fight this certain character. And he was like, wait, what? I didn't know about that. You know, so it was this. Uh, it's just some interesting stuff. It reminds me in a lot of ways of the original Zelda. Uh, I was going to say that if you didn't. Yeah. Uh, yeah, with, it, yeah like, it might sound weird but well, i think like Miyamoto built it into the shigeru Miyamoto built that into the game where he wanted people to talk about these weird things and that like uh, dark souls very much draws and takes from zelda and i think a positive way and so i'm delighted to see that that's still part of the game right right and even some of the other ways um some of the and this is not necessarily exclusive to zelda but some other things that I thought were interesting is like, I felt like the mountain area is quite similar to, you know, what you see in Zelda as Death Mountain, because it's in like every Zelda game almost, right? Or, right. you know, you have like this area that kind of, it's like, oh, this is this is Lake Hylia, right? Or this is, uh, I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, and the original Zelda is a little harder than some of the other games in the series. Yes, but regretfully, this is not an Elden Ring uh, mm-hmm. podcast, though we could do a, a special <laughs> episode. Uh, 
But so yeah, in terms of uh, role-playing games, I played a little bit of Eclipse Phase. My good friend has been running sort of a what was originally like a one or two shot. And now we're up to four sessions because we keep doing more stuff. So that's been mm-hmm. a lot of fun. Uh, I will be running uh, 13th Age tomorrow, uh, which I'm really excited about. Um, I've just like figured out how some of the combat uh, building math works. And so I'm going to inflict that on my poor players. I also found a resource on Patreon called Epic Isometric. Uh, where they make maps in like an isometric style, also monsters. So it looks kind of like an old school computer game. So it looks like your Baldur's Gate or your Final Fantasy Tactics. And so that's a lot of fun for a virtual tabletop like Foundry. Wow, that's pretty neat. That reminds me of, uh, you know, NetHack? It's like an old roguelike game. Yeah, by reputation. I think there's a, a visual overlay for that called Vulture that makes it like isometric uh i i haven't really messed around with that hack i like rogue and i like uh i i played ancient domains of mystery that one's really hard like i feel like it's overly hard like you can like die before you get to the town and it's like oh that was kind of not fun <laughs> but, uh like rogue you you know you start you just whoever you just use the same character every time basically NetHack, you actually, or uh, Ancient Domains of Mystery, you actually make a character. And sometimes it's like, okay, I made this character. And then you like walk to the town. It's like, all the bandits ambush you when you die. And you're like, that kind of, I don't know. Um, Yeah, I I have not been playing any tabletop RPGs. I have been running Troika. Uh, uh, A fun thing that happened today, yesterday, this this is somewhat unrelated, but just fun thing, I got a bunch of packages in that I was waiting for for a while. So I got the Egret 2 Mini, which is a small Taito arcade machine with a bunch of built-in Taito games. And you can rotate the screen for the shmups. Uh, shm- shmup being shoot 'em up uh, space shooter game. And uh, I also got a bunch of Wild Arms-related merchandise in the mail. There were like 36 items in this box that weighed like 25 pounds. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah they weren't all wild arms items uh, wild arms is an rpg a video game rpg series i really like uh it takes place in a a setting similar to trigon if you've if people have seen that it's kind of depending on the game it, it varies between like more or less sci-fi and some elements of maybe you could say steampunk or um i don't know almost like a his alternate history style setting but it's not really alter it doesn't take place on earth but it sometimes it resembles like the 1800s or something um but i got a bunch of that stuff in the mail there was like a dragon some dragon quest plushes and stuff too uh oh, wild arms 3 phone card i got in the mail have you ever seen those that's like no. they do uh is it like like to make phone calls is it a prepaid yeah. phone call it's a prepaid phone card those are very big in Japan, so that makes sense. Well, there, uh, one of I think it's Street Fighter EX on PS One. Even the North American one, there's a variant of that game that comes with a phone card. That's wild. Oh, and speaking about Kingsfield and and from software and all that, the original. Well, it's actually the second, but in America, it's labeled as Kingsfield, uh, like one or whatever. Uh, that game comes with a little. It's not really a. Well, it might be prepaid. It comes with a little phone card kind of thing, and it's like call the hint line, you know. Um, yeah, that makes sense. 
for a from yeah, well, software game. That is really <laughs> brilliant to bundle that in. Especially right. in the like pre pre go look on YouTube kind of days. Yeah, there was no YouTube in nineteen ninety five. Nineteen ninety five or nineteen ninety six. Um, I do miss game FAQs, but like it's all on YouTube now. Yeah, I do go on game FAQs sometimes. Um uh, but anyway, about running games, yeah. So I've been running Troika. We we are almost done with the adventure. We haven't played in a little bit because I've had all this crazy school stuff where uh, I, I feel like one of the professors... I feel like both of my professors are having trouble organizing things, and one of them seems to think people have more time in a period of time than they do. Um, I'm not going to get really into that, but he just, he had us do something in class that everybody was upset about. And I'm amazed we did it because you'd think it would be obvious that everybody was upset and it was unreasonable, but whatever we, we did it, I guess. Um, Troika has been pretty cool. I, I realized over time though, I don't like the system. Uh, I, the, the, the module is pretty fun. But the module is also uh, maybe a little too vague. It's kind of like from software thing where it doesn't give you all the details. But I think it like in some way, like, and I, I think that's fine to an extent, but sometimes like it's really unclear how the characters are supposed to get from one location to another. And it's set up like a point crawl. Are you familiar with those? Ken? I am not. No, like I've heard of hex crawls. Well, it's kind of the same thing, but they don't want to use actual hexes for whatever reason. So it'll be like the characters are in Lordran or whatever. They can go to Ash Lake or that, which I don't think you can do that in that game, but or they can go to the catacombs. Just to go on with Dark Souls. Um, right. And, you know, and like, so it, it it's almost like it's it's sort of more railroady in a way, and that kind of I think is kind of negative, but I guess it I don't know, I guess it reduces uh like what people see as like kind of pointless choices. I don't know. My problem with it though is sometimes it's really not clear like like there's some really weird like psychedelic stuff that happens like the players are on an asteroid, and it's like, well, how did they get on an asteroid and then it's like on how to get off, it just says, like, oh, a boat could come by, or whatever. Like, they're, like, flying boats. Flying ships. And just, like, a ship could come by, or maybe they repair it, and it's like, oh, okay, well, I guess. Like, like th I mean, those are fine, but it, it doesn't really explain how they even get to the other areas. Like, I don't even understand how the ships really work. So, it's a little weird, and I just... I I looked for a random vehicle generator and I came up with a a, a ski lift. So <laughs> I mean that's that's kind of amazing if you're on an asteroid and a ski lift comes, but it is a particular sort of tone. Um, it it was funny. It fit the game, but it was it was funny. <laughs> yeah, I think like it would be interesting to discuss another time, like just the assumptions that published adventures make, right? I don't mind mm -hmm. doing the work to make a um, to make a scenario and to do all that connective tissue, but when I pick up a game or like the intro scenario or anything like that, I do expect them to have done some of that or to give me a you know throw me a bone. 
Right. The intro scenario isn't actually as harsh. This is uh, a, a another book, but it's just sometimes it's kind of weird, and I don't know. Some like sometimes I wonder, like, well, how are like like sometimes you'll look at another section and it seems like you're supposed to have done something a certain way or you know it suggests something and it's 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 just kind of weird sometimes um but yeah like my main takeaway about troika is just i don't like the system it's just one stat basically i find that really not fun um i'm sure that's appealing to some people but yeah i think that go ahead no go ahead uh, I was just gonna say, like, there's that thing of like, you like the system, or you like the, or you like the setting, or you like the idea, but then like the system kind of wears on you, and like that ties in with what I'm planning to run in the near future. Is like, really wanted to run kind of a, a strange game of Eclipse Phase, which is this far future game, where like it's quite possible to have every player character be like different iterations of one person. Uh, the game calls them forks. So, like, everyone is, like, Bob A, then Bob B, then Bob C, and Bob D. But, like, I haven't wanted to run it in the Eclipse Phase system because it's kind of clunky as much as I love the ideas. And so now I've decided my current crazy idea is to run it with Apocalypse World and get my chance to finally run Apocalypse World. Um, We'll see how well that works. Like, Eclipse Phase fiasco worked great. Uh, Some of my other mashups don't always work so well. Mm. I've been thinking of running... I Well... We'll see how Troika goes, like, in the in, forward if we want to keep doing stuff. But I was thinking just running Troika as Quags, but just use the Troika setting. Because it's very similar to Quags anyway. Um, but it's just something about... It's just kind of awkward. I don't know. Right. If you roll bad on that... On the skill roll, like, that's, like you know, like, how high your skill ability score is... You're for the whole game. You you have terrible rolls. Then, like that's your one check. So like it's I don't know. It just it, there should be at least three. I feel like. Um, I don't know. We'll get into that later. We might talk about it as a as a uh, games you wanted to like thing. Yeah, we're thinking about that, and so you know, for that we're not going to do the like podcaster totally destroy this game but like i think we each have a few games that, like we really wanted to like or love and we just couldn't quite find find that territory yeah all right well time to go into the, the harsh yep. realm here now into the stuff that like why i did that disclaimer at the start so that's what for what's about to come up right so just you know if you want to leave Feel free to, but you know you always have the choice to to leave. It is your under your control. Um, so today we're going to be talking about M A R Barker. Uh, he was a professor of Urdu. He was a Muslim convert. He was a war gamer. He was also a Nazi separatist. So M A R Barker. Oop, go ahead, Ken. Uh- I was just going to say, until about two, three weeks ago, nobody really knew that last one. Uh, he was more prominently known as an RPG writer. Right. Yeah, so so brief history about Barker. He was born Philip Barker. He was born in 1929. He passed away in 2012. Uh, he was, he's kind of like Tolkien in a lot of ways, where he, cre- he was really interested in languages, and he created this fantasy setting. 
to sort of understand languages. So obviously Tolkien had Middle Earth. Uh, Barker had Tecumel. And Tecumel is, uh, is very different from Middle Earth. Uh, well, Barker is from uh, Washington, the state of Washington in the U.S. And Tecumel, his creation was a combination of like ancient, ancient, like, well, that's not really ancient. That's a weird misconception. But uh, about Mesoamerican cultures, um, about China, like what people often say, Imperial China, or sort of like ancient China, about like Hindu mythology and stuff like that, India. And he combined all these things with a sci-fi setting. He was inspired by the dying earth. And again, his language studies. And he created this setting. And it was actually the second uh, game, I believe, published by TSR, who, of course, are famous for uh, Dungeons and Dragons. It was known as Empire of the Petal Throne. He had actually published it first in 74, and then TSR created a box set in 75. And it's had several other versions published over the years. Yeah, and like I think it's worth noting at this point, like I'd heard bits and pieces about Tecumel, but there's so many games it's hard to get to them all. But like it sounded pretty neat. And like I'm I like that there's these non uh Greyhawk, you know, non Forgotten Realms settings like Clorantha as well. Uh written by people who are experts, right? The author of uh Glorantha is like an anthropology expert and professor. And so if you'd pitched me on that part, especially a month or two ago, I'd be like, yeah, I would I would absolutely be interested in playing or reading uh, about Tecumel and Empire of the Petal Throne. Right. Well, the weird thing is I had, we have this Discord chat, and I posted it in there like a month before this happened. And then I saw this news and I was like, whoa, man, like what the heck? So, So the news I'm referring to is... It was revealed. I'm not really sure how. Do you do you know how the news broke? I don't either. Um, I saw it like making the rounds on Twitter, and I'm not exactly sure like who broke this story. See, from what I gathered, it was a so there's a thing called the Tecumel Foundation, and they sort of like keep this stuff in print and and uh, have like a a Barker library. So M A R Barker, uh, because I I didn't really mention this. Um, that those initials stand for Muhammad Abd al Rahman Barker because he, like I said, he converted to Islam. He was a white guy, but he he converted to Islam. And so you know they they keep that stuff in print. People like they try to promote it to an extent. Uh, the Tecumel stuff, and from what I understand, there was a somebody who worked for them like ten years ago. So around when he he died, because uh, he died. 10 years and two weeks ago. Around when he died, they found a manuscript that was in the uh, library of the Tecumel Foundation, and it was a novel known as Serpent's Walk. And, and this novel, like, was it actually published or was it just like a draft that they found amongst his things? No, it was, it was absolutely published. Uh, okay. I don't remember the name of the. Pu- I don't even want to mention the name of the publisher, but it was. Yeah. 
it was it was a notorious um white supremacist publisher and they had published some other stories about uh the story is about what if it 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 explicitly says this what if the good guys won or something and the good guys are the uh nazis and it's like um all right i don't i don't know about that but yeah yeah that's not really a a fun alternate history experiment no it's it's not and you know i i did some reading about it cuz when I read about it, it reminded me of a of another book that we'll mention in a little bit called The Iron Dream, which is a satire. Uh, but this book is not intended as a satire. This is intended, you know, again, this is published by a white supremacist publisher who published uh, another novel. I, I think it's called The Turner Diaries, which is... Uh, it says it depicts Wikipedia says it depicts a violent revolution in the U.S. which leads to the overthrow of the federal government, a nuclear war, and ultimately a race war. And this inspired some very bad actors, like, like actual, like dangerous people, not just like a guy writing a stupid RPG, like a guy like a bombers and stuff. Um, so it's you know they this publisher is not joking around. Like it's, it's bad stuff. And it was also discovered that Barker between, again, this quote of Wikipedia between 1990 and 2002, he served as a member of the journal of historical review, which was a, a basically a Holocaust denial board and like an anti-Semitic organization. So, he, you know, it's like he wasn't messing around. And this might sound weird because I just mentioned he was a professor of Urdu, of, of Southeast Asian studies. He was, I think he worked for University of Michigan or something. Uh, University of Minnesota. Uh, he chaired the Department of South Asian Studies. You know, so it's like, well, why? Like, what's with this guy, right? Why would he do this stuff? There is a strange history between Nazism and uh, India with, um, uh, I, I, you know, I don't want to mention too in depth here, but there is um, an Indian woman who, who created this kind of esoteric, what they call esoteric Nazism, where Hitler is worshipped as a, an avatar of Vishnu. And I don't know if that's Barker's idea. I, I tried to read the Serpent's Walk book so I would know what I was talking about, but I... I, I I just I couldn't read it. It was it was just very unpleasant. Yeah, I think it, it would be troubling if you're like, yeah, it was great. <laughs> it's a real shame about the Nazism. Uh, <laughs> it's 500 pages too. It's like I don't want to read this crap. Like what? You know, like <laughs> no. And like like broader context, like uh, World War II and the Nazis are not always seen the same way in Asia, right? Like the education's not the same. I'm most familiar with it in reference to Japan, right? Which was not on the same side as the US when it comes to World War II. And so like the way they learn about it is different, but like it is a thing in other um, uh, Southeast Asian countries where like, they're like, well, the Nazis had pretty cool uniforms. And then you're like, do you know the rest of the history? And I don't mean this in like a patronizing way. They don't always, like it's not uh, always seen the same way. 
I don't think that excuses Barker, though, who is a professor of history. Like, he knows exactly what he's doing. When he was born in 29, you know, he was around when that was happening. He was right. 10 years old when, you know, the war started. Uh, or if you go further back. I mean, it depends on how you want to determine that. But, uh, you know, he, was, he wasn't even 20 years old when the war ended. And so he was living in that environment of like, hey, this, you know, this terrible war occurred. Yeah, I don't know anything about Southeast Asian ideas on Nazism or, or whatnot. I have no ground to stand on to speak about that. Uh, just real quick. I don't want to paint with too broad a brush either. It's just like people from uh, like Europe and America tend to be really horrified when they see people like incorporating Nazi uh uh, icon iconography as part of like fashion shows and stuff like that but some of it does come from different history i don't think that like excuses it and there are some people who are just like straight up neo-nazis uh within those countries right but oh yeah um it is important to keep in mind like uh the discussions are different that's all i'm trying to say yeah just to, i will mention that briefly you know we do of course see depiction similar uniforms uh, to Nazis sometimes in, in Japanese media. Um, and it can be kind of uncomfortable. Uh, it certainly makes me uncomfortable. I, I don't live in Japan. Um, so I don't know, but also, yeah, like just, uh, like Helsing has Nazi vampires as villains and like that felt different to see at a con. It still felt uncomfortable, but it felt different to see at a, a convention in the early two thousands, right. As it does now when like things are, you know, Nazis are more of a uh, pressing concern than we thought they were in the early 2000s. Well, that's actually, that's interesting. Um, my band, Sorry I'm Dead, has a song called She's a Nazi Baby. And the subject matter of the song came because I saw somebody, I I, I, I saw a, a cosplay of a, of a Hetalia character, Hetalia being a, uh, manga and anime about um, like the World War II countries represented as like people basically, right? Right. It's like cute anime people. Yeah, and so they were dressed as Nazi Germany. And I was like, that's not, like, I don't know what you're going for there, but that, I don't think that's good. Um, so I've had a very like Ugh, kind of response to that to think about that show after it's like oh boy like i don't know if that's the way to do that i mean i i don't know i didn't read it i didn't see it but it just i don't i don't know yeah but i think like we've maybe got a little uh astray and i think it's partly my yeah. fault i think like let's get back to barker um and like, okay how that ties in with his work well, yeah, so just going back to India and all that, of course, the Nazis took the the swastika, the, the manji from Asia and turned it in. They flipped it, which I believe was already an Asian symbol. And of course, that's, that same symbol, the manji, appears in uh, several cultures. And, you know, and there's You'll ties with... It. You do. I mean, it's in, it. it's in Zelda yeah. 1, actually. I didn't know that. It's a manji, though. It's not the swastika. Mm -hmm. uh, the manji is a positive symbol. The swastika is a negative symbol. They, they go opposite ways. Uh, but it still is kind of uncomfortable, right? Um, for, for 
I don't know. I mean, it might not seem as weird if maybe you grew up in a Hindu environment. I, I don't know. I didn't do that. So I, I can't speak from that perspective. Uh, you do see in some Native American artwork. I don't know particularly which groups, uh, but you do see that sometimes. Obviously, Blade of the Immortal, the character that wears the Manji on the back, that's his name, Manji. Uh, that was the first manga I ever bought. I felt really weird about it. It sounded interesting, but I was like, man, this guy's like a swastika on his back. But uh, I don't know. So the point is, like, you know, they were taking stuff from there. There's this idea of who is Caucasian. Uh, the word Caucasian comes from this idea that there are different groups that dis- that were, you know, right nowadays we have this general idea. It's very much seems to be accurate that human beings come from Africa and then you know, move to other areas of the earth. Well, in right. the early 1900s, we had some pretty weird ideas. We, we talked about this briefly with theosophy and all that. I shouldn't say, we, I shouldn't say weird, but there are some unusual, we say they're unusual today, right? I don't, I don't really want to uh, attack people or anything um, who, who aren't doing anything wrong. I just Yeah. Say. Like, as, as a scientist, right, you can throw out all kinds of hypotheses, right? Um, and with the information, like, they didn't have mitochondrial DNA lineages. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with posturing. Like, maybe people came out of India. Maybe people came out of Africa. But then extra layers get added onto it, right? And so it's like, well, then people from India are inherently better and then uh, we have to explain how Europeans are connected to people from India because they are also inherently better. And that's bad science when you're writing the conclusion based on what you want it to be. And so, like, I think that's where you get into problems. But, the, you know, they're, they're, uh, and it's an um, interaction between philosophy and just uh, occultism of the time. I don't think that's like, immoral, but it is sort of a thought experiment that gets out of control. Theosophy is a is a new religious movement from uh, Helena Blavatsky, and it it does crop up in different conspiracy theories and different. Uh, you mentioned Rosafon. Yeah, if um, this is like our anime shout out episode, <laughs> not a, not any of our other episodes are like that, but uh, the anime Rosafon draws on that symbolism in particular, um, the idea of like the empire of Mew and some of those ideas. I believe stems from Theosophy. Yeah, I'm not. I don't know if it actually does, but it's definitely part of that. Yeah, and and occult history is very messy. Everybody steals from everybody else. Right, and I I do actually study that stuff um, to an extent. I started really studying a lot of religion, uh, I don't know, four years ago or something. And uh, I not like super in-depth, like super, you know, hardcore, like scholarly stuff, um, but like somewhat scholarly stuff. Like I, you know, I, I, I've listened to scholars talk on the internet. I'm not like necessarily reading, you know, these ancient sources, but... I don't know. But the point is, I, yeah, like, there, there's some weird stuff, uh, or there's some, there's some ideas that have been discredited in, in, you know, the last hundred years. And one of them is that, yeah, like, people came out of, uh, I guess, India or out of the Caucasus Mountains. And we do, of course, have this history of, like, you know, what, it, what does race mean? What is race? Because race, you know, when I think of race, it is pretty much, uh, you know, as they say, a social construct. 
It's just kind of like, how do you determine that? If you look at another country, you're, you might see something totally different, how people are describing uh, categories of people than we do in the United States or than they do in, you know, than somebody might in Mongolia or something, right? It's might be different in Spain or might be different in, in uh, Zimbabwe or something. Right. And this is one of those things where like as a biologist, like there are people who will talk about like race science, but you should not listen to those people. <laughs> like that's a danger sign. And that like uh, actual genetics, actual, like, especially when you get into multi-celled eukaryotic things like people, they're so complicated that anyone who tells you that it's just simple um, is, is misleading you and probably has an agenda. And uh, just going, we will talk a little bit about this, I think, and over time, because we're going to eventually talk about H.P. Lovecraft and some historical elements of uh, fantasy. But I, I do have like sort of a funny story, right? So I'm Italian um, and I'm also Irish. So in the 1800s, I think Americans would not consider me a white person, uh, which is weird to think about because we think, oh, well, those are white people, right? Um and I have a funny story where this woman like accused me of being like a secretly Asian person. And she was convinced I was like pretending to be a white person. That's and it wild. Was very, it's bad. Right. And I'm just thinking like, yeah. how would, um, like it really make you know, it's like, maybe don't do that. Like, don't be like, where are you really from? It's like, don't just don't do that to people. Like, that's just weird. And uh, right. I don't I don't think I look particularly Chinese or Japanese, but that was her assumption. I don't know. But well, that's a, a go to like attack for some people. Right. And like this is a point where I think like going forward, uh, like it's important to acknowledge privilege and also just like where we're coming from. And so like I'm, yeah. I'm white. I got blonde hair and hazel eyes. Right. And all that stuff. But I, I have also like attended workshops and stuff through my work to try and um understand how to be more inclusive and how to do a better job at stuff like that. So like, I don't have to deal with a lot of that anxiety, but I've also like seen it and I've tried to listen when it comes up. So like just trying to get that out of the way, um, because I'm actually going to come back to that idea later. Yeah. Well, and I'm not trying to say I have, cause I don't at all have the same experience as someone who is experiencing racism for being black or racism for being, uh, like an Arab American or something. But that, like, white is a slight scale, especially as you go through history, right? Like, like you say, Irish aren't white until a particular point. Like, even Germans were, like, not good immigrants for a while. They were the drunks in Chicago, like, for a while. Uh, oh, wow. These, yeah, if you go, uh, Gangs of Chicago talks about it, where, like, they tried to ban alcohol sales on Sunday, if I remember right. And, um, like the Germans and some of the other groups from Europe are like, hell no, we want our beer. And they use that as an example of like how dangerous these people were. And so it's just like, always there's in-group and out-group and always people will, will take advantage of that. It's disappointing. I think that like, these are still things that come up that that's still like something people use as an insult or an accusation, right? Like you're a secret Asian as if that's a, a shameful thing. But people do, right? Like, that's that's a thing that they reach for. Yeah, I've been accused of being... or People have called me Mexican. One time a guy made a really weird racial slur at me about being Hispanic. And I was thinking, like, I'm not even Hispanic or Latino. But just, like, don't do that. I don't know. Just don't 
Don't do that to people. Just don't. I don't, just don't just do don't. it. Man. Uh, simple as that. Don't do that. Um, hot hot take from Game Master's Prism. Maybe don't be racist. Maybe don't be a jerk. Yeah. yeah um, I don't know. Simple as that. Don't be an asshole. Um, but but uh, I, I don't know. And again, that's not to say, you know, like, this is the same as if I was experiencing racism all the time or in more regular uh, amounts. I, just the point I'm trying to make is like, Race is not really as clear cut as somebody on the far right might want you to think it is. And right. especially over time. And if we look even at Nazi ideas, they they're not particularly coherent between different people. Right. Uh, we have one guy saying one thing, another person saying another thing. One person says Hitler is an avatar of Vishnu. One person says, I don't you know, I'm an atheist and there's no gods in this. And someone else is you know, talking about Christianity or whatever. And there's somebody else talking about Gnosticism. There's all this, whatever. It's just, it's, it's confusing. Uh, well, not even confusing, but it's just, it's not a coherent thing. It's just people saying stuff. Um, yeah. So anyway, th- we went on a little tangent, but how, like we, we have seen some responses from communities about Barker and, um, the whole, the whole Tecumel example. Um, when I was first reading about it, I, I saw a Reddit post and somebody was pointing out that it seemed like Barker wasn't explicit. Like, so Barker married, I believe she was from Pakistan. So, you know, again, it's not like he was just saying like anybody who isn't, who isn't like with, you know, paler skin is evil. But again, maybe he thought of someone from Palestine or someone from his, uh, from, from, uh, uh, India as being, you know, Caucasian, so to speak, that, you know, it's hard to tell, but the, uh, you know, he, he's, his idea that people came to, at least in this Reddit group, and it makes sense to me is he seems to be sort of like this far right separatist. So it's like every people can exist. They just have to live in their own far right ethno state that like destroys everybody else. Like, Everyone has to be like in this secret, like we're always at war with the other, like, you know, peoples or whatever. And that's really insidious, right? Because it's not like, oh, I don't hate anybody. They should just be among their own kind. And you're just like, well, what do you mean by that? And like, oh, you know, right? There's a lot of insinuation of this stuff. I mean, like, it goes way back, right? Like, you don't want to go to the cities because those people are there. Like, that's code, usually for anti-Semitism, but it depends when people are saying it. I feel like it's usually people being uh, uh, anti-Black. Uh, In the know, U.S. My... now, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and and that used to happen. Like, so I live in a in a working-class neighborhood, I would call it, probably a more poor neighborhood but this school i went to they combined the schools in the i think it was either 1970 or the late 60s or might have even been it would have been the 70s i guess they combined the high schools and our high school combined you know so that predates me but our high school combined with the rich kid high school and even when i was going to high school in the 2000s people would call the kids where i lived they would call you river rat they would call you hood rat they would say stuff like You'll get shot if you go there. Like, it was crazy stuff, you know, just from just neighborhoods, right? 
And there was right. kind of a, a racial element to that too, in addition to obviously being a very classist and uh, economic element. So I don't know. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of code stuff. Um, but so a lot of people have responded to this. They've they've taken a look at Empire of the Petal Throne and said, "How does it? Like, do we miss something? Did you have you looked into that?" much I don't know I haven't so that kind of brings us to our next one uh, we're recording this on uh, trans day of visibility so uh, shout out to Polly Kid who recorded an amazing video about this exact topic and like she actually corresponded with MAR Barker um, really liked Tuckamel like said it was foundational to some of her writing and, and role-playing stuff and so I tried to watch her review on ECML and EPT and I couldn't do it. It just broke my heart. And so like I, you know, oh. because that one was recorded way before this all came out. And so like I'm the one who has to ask at this point, like what what did people see? And I'm going to come back to that video that she made because I think it's an excellent starting point. But yeah, what did people see in terms of like ethno states in the actual writing? I think what they saw it. Well, I don't see as much of the ethno state thing. But I, well, I guess I do. Um, so I, I will bring up, I'm not actually an expert on Tecmo at all. It was something I became interested in because I've been working on my own fantasy setting uh, more in depth over time and making it uh, less of a, like, of like a Western Europe kind of setting and less of a, Tolk uh, well, not Tolkien, but kind of like a D&D tropeful setting. Because that, as I realized over time, it, that actually made it harder to write about and made it harder right. to imagine. And, uh, and, and I bring that up because Tecumel of course is, is very different. Uh, it has the element of trying to, you know, incorporate language. Barker created languages for it. Um, but I, so I think what people saw with it, right. What I saw with it was, okay, this is other ways to look at stuff. How can we look at sci-fi in relation to fantasy? And have it not be maybe as explicit um, as something like, let's say, Masters of the Universe, right? Where they have, like, laser guns and stuff. But the hero looks like Conan the Barbarian. But, you know, in... Uh, and, and this is actually common in, in that sword and sorcery era. It's like, the ancient peoples had super science, but we don't. Like, we just have the remnants or something. And it's kind of in right. D&D, so... Yeah, that filters in. Yeah, that's kind of what I saw there. Um, it does a good job explaining how dungeons work in the setting. It's very, very interesting about that. The dungeons, um, dungeons are the old cities that are destroyed over time to build new cities. And you can go to like old, like subway stations, basically underground. And like, they're, they're infested with, you know, like aliens and stuff now, like, you know, like monsters, so to speak. I don't mean like a, like, you know, a racial element there. But, yeah. um, I mean, you couldn't authors sure do. What? Oh, uh, no. So other authors sure oh, do. No. We'll come back to that when we talk about Howard. Oh, uh, but so, like, I really like that. I'm just going to, like, uh, uh, people have a lot of critiques of the sort of Shannara books, whatever. I love the trope of uh, the post-apocalypse was so long ago, it's now a fantasy setting, right? And your sword and sorcery people stumble into a subway. Like, I love that. Um, it's part of a couple other uh, series and settings that I really like. 
it's sort of a spoiler to bring it up if you don't know it going in. But like, I think that's great. I like that as something to work with. It's unfortunate that it's now tied to this thing that is kind of toxic. Well, the thing is, I, I think it's been tied to this kind of thing for some time. Because, and, and, you know, we, we will get into that, but I, sword and sorcery and I think fantasy as a whole have some eerie elements to them in the past. And, you know, we can look at specific authors, which we will be doing, uh, Lovecraft and to an extent, Robert Howard, Robert E. Howard. And, uh, you know, there are elements of that, but another, another, uh, newer setting that does that is of course, Adventure Time, where there's this idea of like the the post apocalypse was so long ago another one of course is gamma world that's not i don't think it's as long ago but that has elements of that i don't know there there are a number of games i'm I'm looking at this game enslaved odyssey of the west i think that has some of that uh it's kind of like yeah. journey to the west i feel like uh it's been long enough that the statute of limitations is up but like the the game near does a little bit with that as well and i think that's really oh i don't know and- that don't um, go for it. I won't. I won't. But like, it, it does a little with this trope, and like, it's it's a Yoko Taro well, game. It's very strange, but like, I love that mm-hmm. about it, frankly. Um, I guess I did know it was related because I know it's related to another series. Yes, uh, and and again, there's a lengthy uh, sideline we can go about that, so we shouldn't. But yeah, I do think that idea of like things were better and now they're mm-hmm. worse. Um, and they're never going to get better or things like that. Like there is some fraught storytelling there potentially. Right. And so, yeah, just trying to come back to Barker. We're a little all over the place. There's a lot to talk about here. Uh, I think people did see some of the ethnostate stuff cause they saw, well, like Polly Kidd had mentioned, you know, is it like they got rid of all of, in this example, they got rid of all of the like non Brown people basically and went to the stars. Not the black, I mean, they got rid of the black people, they got rid of the white people, maybe, or at least the the sort of brown, so to speak, people. There was a kid in my school, he would always say, what can brown do for you? He'd make a joke. He was from yeah. India. But, uh, uh, but uh, you know, it was like, they had went to space, right? And, and so it's like, but we only see, I mean, it's kind of bizarre, because it's not just people from, like, Mesoamerica or or from India or something. I mean, it's not even really consistent. It's like, what did people revert to their like medieval like Aztec religions or something? I don't know. It's kind of weird. But um, so people saw that. People also saw a lot of promotion of Empire with Empire Empire of the Petal Throne. I mean, it's in the name. But there's a lot of elements of like try like there's from what I understand. I Oh, I should mention again, I, I don't I haven't actually read the core Empire of the Petal Throne books. I've only read the Petal Hack. I was trying to buy some of the books and then I now I'm kind of like, I don't know. And they're kind of expensive, too. But yeah, like so there's this, uh, you know, this this kind of like not really alignment, but it's promoted like that you should be a member of society. You should be like an upstanding member of this setting. And the setting is not like a a lot of like modern fantasy settings where it's kind of replicating uh modern ideals in a in a medieval setting this is it has ideals that are not pleasant which i don't think is inherently negative but some people you know are tying it back to his other ideas and it's like yeah it's kind of weird 
because I mean, there's like slavery, which you know was a thing. Um, it sucks, but it you know was a thing. Um, so there's slavery, there's human sacrifice, there's uh, uh this is kind of in the opposite direction. There's like sort of this free love thing. Um. And you know, and your and your characters are kind of supposed to promote the empire, as we might think of like ancient Rome or something, right? And I think I just want to get out of the way too. Um, like, there is a contingent like of people who are like, it's problematic. Put it away forever. You can't engage with it. But I think like part of the point of art right. is a way to break break down problematic stuff into um, things that we can engage with. It's a way to work through things. And so like at the that's why at the start of the show. I brought up the idea of like lines and veils and X card is because I know for me personally, I use horror sometimes to process other stuff. I've used games to do that. Um, I've done my best to be responsible about it. But like just because you have a bad thing in the game or in your in your novel doesn't mean you're a bad person. It maybe means you're grappling with that, too. But now we have another data point um, about some of the aspects of this and how maybe Parker was thinking about it and like. Uh, what parts of it were bad versus admirable. Right. And so then people also do do look at admirable aspects as saying, this is not Western Europe. This is not medieval France. This is not medieval England. Uh, this is, you know, it, he created a language based on, uh, I. it's a few different ones, but I'm trying to not open other tabs because we had this whole fiasco earlier where we were trying to close all our tabs. Because they were taking up like serious disk space. Because Ken and I are really bad at keeping uh, tabs not open, and I, I had like four hundred tabs us. open. Yeah, I think between the two of us, we had north of five hundred tabs. You know, yeah. We have lots of thoughts. <laughs> so I'm trying to not open more because then it'll it'll remove my other ones from the history because I closed them all. Um, but okay, so his language, I have trouble pronouncing this. I think it's Soyani. Um, it draws its inspiration, according to Wikipedia, from Urdu, Pashto, Mayan, and Nahuatl. Um, so, you know, people were looking at that going, okay, this is a scholar about these things. He's created this setting about these things. But as you mentioned, it's like, how do we deal with this now? What, what is, like, what should be done? And I, you brought up the Polly Kid video. And I think she did a yeah. really good job of mentioning that. And I should mention, Polly Kid is actually famous, uh, not as famous as like Gygax or, or Dave Arneson, but she's worked on a number of RPGs in the past and novels and things like that. And I do just real quick, I want to acknowledge that like, it can be problematic that um, someone who, who was born as like Phil Barker making a language from these cultures, he's not part of. Right. And there's definitely right. a conversation on appropriation there. I'm not qualified to really do it. I want to acknowledge it and just say like, I get it. Um, but that's the Nazism kind of supersedes that right now. Um, right. Yeah, so. No, that I, I'll mention that is a thing that I thought about before. And I was I, I didn't really know what to think of it, honestly. But yeah, and I don't either. I think like, that's a thing to come back to. But like, let's acknowledge it. And that like, absolutely. If you're from one of those cultures, I, I think that's something that could feel exploitative or opportunistic or the fact that like cool an old white guy got to talk about your culture instead of you right like that's a that's a thing that's been the case for a long time um, right with that said um like polykid and like go go watch polykid's video um 
she's very good at talking about this. It's only uh, like 15 minutes long. But she puts out these metrics for engaging with art um, from problematic figures, right? Whether it's Lovecraft or um, M.A.R. Barker. Uh, and she suggests like the three Ps. And so the first one's profit. Uh, if someone's dead, like Lovecraft or Barker is, well, they're not going to directly profit. Um, you can check on their estate, but like that's sort of out of the equation. But prestige is a second one where you kind of add to their name, right? Uh, Lovecraft is only remembered anymore because of kind of his disciples and the people he talked to and the fact that, frankly, he's associated with the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game. Uh, and so like when you engage with these people's art, you are kind of keeping them in the collective knowledge. Um, and, and that's something to think about. And then finally is, is the platform, which is another layer onto that, where you are potentially, by engaging with their art, with engaging with their ideas, you are giving those ideas a platform yourself and letting them spread. And so that's something to be, I think, really aware of. And um, it's a weird age we live in, right? You didn't always know the crappy opinions that your favorite fantasy author had because Twitter didn't exist and Facebook didn't exist. But now you do, and that changes our set of responsibilities. Um, and so like, I think I really like those three metrics as a way to think about how you want to engage with art from someone you've learned maybe you don't agree with or maybe you find kind of reprehensible in their views. Right. Something she also brought up. Not, I don't, do you know if she created that metric or if it's part of? I, I don't. Uh, I'd be really interested in that. Like, she presented it really well, but I don't know where it came from. Yeah. Uh, well, any, anyway. Um, uh, but yeah, no, I, I had never heard of it before. And I was like, wow, that's like, that's a great point. Um, because it comes up, right? Who hasn't like engaged and like, uh, I, Harry Potter is another one, right? Like J.K. Rowling right. has made a lot of people think about like how they want to uh, deal with that art, how if they want to buy anything Harry Potter, and like I'm not giving them a hard time, but like this is a thing to think about. And here, here's like a metric to kind of um, break down how you want to interact with it. I thought that was a really brilliant comparison because I didn't, I didn't know about all of the changes being made in the UK that were like anti-trans. Uh, related and they're being I guess they're being held up by JK Rowling to an extent I don't know how much she's engaged in that we don't live in, in the United Kingdom um, and I do, I'm honestly not that big of a Harry Potter fan I never have been um, I, I read the first two books and I said okay that was alright and that's it but uh, you know I didn't like the idea of a wizard school but it's neither here. It's like stupid, but what? And neither here nor there. But uh, you know, I the thing is, like, she brought that up, like saying, like, well, Rowling uses her prestige to like help these bad things happen. And I was like, wow, I didn't think it went that deep. I just saw it like, okay, like, you know, old lady yells at cloud or something, you know, like that kind of. She's not even that old, but it's like, you know, that kind of thing, like. It's just like someone saying something stupid, but it's like, except we're actually seeing literal, literal changes in her country because of that. Absolutely. And I think like that speaks to the reason we're even talking about this. Right. And so like, 
Yeah, one of the forums uh, I read uh, would would refer to role playing games as like elf games, right? It's a way to kind of make light of the fact that we put so much like money and effort into like it's just elf games, man, right? For, forget it, Jack. It's elf games. Uh, but these things actually do. <laughs> oh, matter. that has a controversial element to it. Oh boy. Yeah, but th- I was going to say it's one matter. of my favorite films, but it, the director. Oh boy. Yes. Speaking of um, separating art from artist. Yeah, I didn't even think about that when I quoted it. But yes, uh, good example. Uh, These things matter, right? The person who writes a book about wizard school becomes someone who actually can serve as a mouthpiece for an entire country and then is amplified for the world. And uh, Polly Kidd also made the really good point that there's a contingent within role-playing games that wants to say, uh, this is the real nature of this hobby right this hobby that i think is fantastic for putting yourself in someone else's shoes and letting people try on identities and all of these things like they want to gatekeep it and they want to say like if you identify this way or if you look this way um we're not going to overtly call you out about it but you're not welcome at our table you know like yeah of course you can play but not with us right and that like there's there's too many examples of this and like I'm not going to name names because it's the kind of thing that you need like so many layers of receipts for. But there was a booth at Gen Con that um, well into the 20 teens was selling like Nazi paraphernalia um, fairly openly. Oh. So you could just buy like Nazi shit at this uh, at this booth at Gen Con, right? Which tries to be family friendly. Um, and so like there, we can't deny the fact that this kind of M.A.R. MA, Parker stuff speaks to a really ugly um subset of the hobby that we like and that Wait, they're gonna what, jump on this what 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 was their how was that how did they present that as re- relevant it was uh some of it was kind of under the table they also sold oh, some like boy. really uh not great consent type stuff like it was just an awful thing but they mostly sold oh. like t-shirts and stuff like that and this is one where like uh you can you can google it and find it like it really is a thing that happened but they they would also uh justify themselves on the historical aspect right they'd be like this is a convention that deals with war games oh. nazis are historical right and so this is just for people who play as the Nazis in, like, I don't know, War for Northern Africa. Uh, not not to slag so players Africa of Corps. War for Northern Africa. They use you to uh, excuse their poor behavior. And so, like, I think that's how they pulled it off. But it's also just no one cared enough to kick them out for a long time until other people made enough of a stink. And so... It's it's one of those things like, oh, you don't want to rock the boat, but like you have to rock the boat to knock the Nazis off of it. Um, and they are here. There's a story. I don't know if it's true, uh, but I want it to be. Uh, but it's about like a bartender story, right? Where someone's drinking at a bar and someone p- comes into the bar and he's very nice. Um, and he orders a drink and the bartender pulls out a bat from under the, the bar and says, get out. And once he leaves... After complaining a bit, the the person telling the story is like, why did you do that? And uh, the bartender says he had a Nazi tattoo. And if you let Nazis drink here, um, they bring their friends. And before you know it, it's a Nazi bar and nobody else comes here and they own your bar. And I really feel like I don't want to be overdramatic, but I think that's part of the thing. Like if you let this kind of behavior pass, 
without saying anything. You show it's okay, and then they bring their friends. And now what is my favorite uh, welcoming, inclusive space, right? It takes work to maintain. And now the people who, who will hurt other people run it. Well, that yeah, I've heard that story also. Um, if you, I don't think you are uh, particularly familiar with this, but if you read about like uh, punk music, particularly like the hardcore kind of music, which I'm not actually the biggest fan of, I'm more of the of the stuff before that. But if you read about that hardcore time period of the 80s, uh, there's a lot of like Nazi punk music trying to break through. And a lot of people were about like, you know, you don't want this in the space because you start having this in. And, and like you said, it's like they take over. Uh, yeah, because the like... thing. Go ahead. Well, I mean, it's not like a. For the most part, I think these people aren't walking around going, hey, I'm a Nazi. Like, I mean, they might say that, but. It's not like so, I mean if someone is black, they're walking around and you're like, oh, they're black, right? But if a Nazi is walking around, I mean, they're probably a white person, probably a white guy. But, like, there are a lot of white people who aren't, like, literally neo-Nazis or part of a Nazi party. But, like, you don't really know what this person is going to do. Like, like, uh, I don't know. Maybe this is a stupid thing to say. I don't know. I'm just, the point is, like, you don't know who they are until maybe then they're like, oh, hey, I'm a Nazi. It's like, oh, good. You know? Yeah. No, I mean, that's a, that's, that's a very real thing. And the fact that, like, it's unfortunate, but the truth is, like, if you want to be sure, if you want to be like the bartender in the story, you have to actually know, like, what a black sun tattoo looks like or what the significance is of, like, an 88 and that kind of thing, oh, right? You boy. have to know as well as the bad actors. And so this comes back to my, uh, the thing I mentioned earlier, that, like, I'm white, I got blonde hair, all that stuff. Um, and it ties back to the From Software, too. Like, I really like the runes in Bloodborne. They symbolize, like, the communication between, uh, like, humans and the, the great old ones of the setting. And I kind of wanted to get a tattoo pre-COVID, and I picked one of the runes that I thought looked cool and had some personal meaning to me. And I actually checked with my friends who know history and, like, who know Nazi stuff. And I was like does this look like any Nazi ruins? Like, that's the last thing I want. And they said, it looks like you're good, you know? And I still decided at the end of the day, I'm not going to do it, right? Because, like, people know what runes look like. They know the kind of people who get rune tattoos. And for people who don't know me, right, for people who might be showing up at my Gen Con table, if I've got a tattoo that looks runic on my forearm, um, they may make assumptions out of self-defense, and I wouldn't fault them for it. So I just don't want to be another white guy that um, gets a rune tattoo, even though it's from a video game. It's the nerdiest shit, right? But I don't want people to have to put their guard up. And so, like, that's the decision I made. And, like, again, like, like you were saying, I'm not saying this is anything on the level of being discriminated against. But it's a decision I made because there's too many crappy white guys with blonde hair with runic tattoos. <laughs> Yeah, like that Odinist kind of thing. Uh, they're trying to, yeah. I think a lot of like Icelandic and Norse people are pretty pissed about their culture being appropriated in this way, right? They're like, you know, uh, the, the religion of their ancestors is now just used as a hateful uh, signifier. That sucks. 
Right, right. Uh, I mean, my, uh, you know, my ancestors have some of that too, I think. Uh, Mussolini and all that nonsense. But, um, yeah, d- again, don't do that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, don't. Right. don't. Um, so I think, like, we, we've we kind of stumbled our way through this. Uh, but I think, like, that brings us to sort of a stopping point, right? That, like... Pauly Kidd brought up the, the P's, right? The Profit Prestige Platform. And uh, another writer who I, I also really enjoy, um, Jeff Grubb, writes great novels. I loved his uh, Magic the Gathering novels back in high school. He suggested that um, uh, Tecumel has this idea of um, uh, Ditlana, where it's periodically destroyed and rebuilt, and that maybe the whole setting needs that as a result of these revelations from uh, about M.A.R. Barker. And I think that's right. a really, yeah, I think it's a really interesting perspective. Uh, how do you feel about that? Um, well, I mean, I think we do see some of that with Lovecraft, and you know more of that than I do. Like I said, we'll be getting into that, but uh, this is going to be a two-part episode because there's just so much to talk about. But, um, I mean, I, I think you could reframe it like that. You could, I mean, we can think about it like, um, yeah, you could look at Petal Throne as uh, that the setting is something like the lawful evil empire or whatever. Or like, if we look at something like Elric or, uh, some Shin Megami Tensei things, we can see like, law as sometimes being evil, right? And chaos as being good, perhaps. Sometimes you need some kind of balance. Maybe I'm being very weird here. But this is kind of like a Moorcock thing, uh, Michael Moorcock. It's like law versus chaos, which I think relates to the, the right-hand and left-hand path of uh, of uh, Tantra, I believe it is. So it's like, do you know, do you go all in with chaos? Do you go all in with law? And I think the suggestion here, well, the way I think of this is like you could play as people fighting against the evil empire. But I mean, maybe that's too much of a meta plot. There's maybe some conversation there to that. But you, I mean, you could play Empire of the Petal Throne that way. Uh, or you could, or yeah, you can say like it's in the future and things are different now. The Ditlana has happened or something. Yeah, and I think, like, you know, <laughs> the evil empire is a trope because it works, right? But right. at the end of the day, like, I find myself, like, when I ask, like, do I still want to read about Tecumel? Would I want to run Empire of the Petal Throne? Like, my answer is, like, no, not really. Um, and, and this is not right. to, to cast shade on people who's invested years of their life in it like that's got to just really hurt and that's part of what Polly kid talked about is like you know you've got this level of investment in something and then you get another data point that cast it in a whole different light but like for me go back profits out of the table the guy is dead much like lovecraft uh, tune in next time to hear my thoughts on lovecraft um but in terms of like platform and prestige there's so much good stuff coming out from underrepresented voices. Um, and I think, like, since I only have so much time, I only have so much money, that's what I'm going to reach for. 
instead of something that has this problematic history. And where, like, I, too, when I'm running a table at Gen Con, I don't want to look at the table and wonder who showed up for Empire of the Petal Throne because they heard he wrote a neo-Nazi book, right? That's not a good dynamic. And so I feel like as a GM, you kind of are lending your own personal like prestige and platform to the games you run. And so for me, it's hard to do that for a game that I'm not totally on board for. And that, like, I think if, if people go to Google and they research a game I run, and one of the top 10 results or the top five results is a neo-Nazi novel, like, I don't feel good about that. I just, I just can't do it. No, that's very fair. I never thought about that because I don't do a lot of conventions. You, I mean, you go to Gen Con like every year, right? Well, I did. Uh, I don't know well, about in this yeah, in this yeah, world yeah. we live in now, but yeah. But uh, no, I mean, I think that's a good point. Like, how do you um, do? You want to present yourself as that in that light? Because I mean, if someone looks up my name, they're not going to see anything about me running Troika. They're not going to really see anything about me involving RPGs. They're going to see. Uh, music and and music reviews and mostly stuff along those lines, I think. Right. Um, or they'll see my academic articles that no one reads. That's that's how that goes. Oh no, but uh, <laughs> well, but yeah, but no, I mean that's a good point. Like if they do see that you're like, I think that is a. I, I think the big question with this is like, yeah, I I don't. Or a big takeaway for this is this is probably not the something you want to run in public if you do want to run it. You would want to know who your players are and be like really specific with them, I think. Right. And, uh, and, you don't uh, want to. Go ahead. Well, I mean, you don't want because you don't want to encourage that behavior. Like, and you don't want that to be an aspect of it, um, any sort of like neo Nazi aspect. And yeah. and and you have more control if there are people you know. So you can say we're going to run a set, a game about fighting against the evil empire, but if you present that at Gen Con, I think you're going to get people who come and go. Oh, I thought it was going to be more standard Tecumel thing. Whether they're pro neo Nazis or not, they're I don't think they're going to expect. You know, you're fighting against the evil empire. Yeah, um, and I've I've never had a bad time running a game at Gen Con. It's been nothing but good. But like. At the same time, I think that kind of brings us back to where we started, right? Where there's games I'll run from my home table, right? I'll run Ten Candles, which is a game of tragic horror. Uh, it's not spoilers. Everybody dies at the end of Ten Candles. That's how the game is structured. But that's not a game mm. that is comfortable running at Gen Con because it requires so much trust from both the players and the GM. And the GM's also a player. Like, there's times when... You know, as a GM, you're like, I'm going to X card out of that. That's not where I'm comfortable running this game. And so this just adds that extra layer of wondering and questioning and stuff like that. That's uh, frankly, I'm going to X card out of it. I'm not comfortable with it. Yeah, I personally, I don't know where I stand with it, uh, if I would want to run it or not or play it. It would really depend on how much of it is relying on some of those questionable elements, um, which I, again I wasn't actually that familiar with, and I and I think it depends on how much you know what are the players' thoughts and all that. My issue with the Evil Empire, right, is like if we look at a game like Dark Sun, the whole theme of Dark Sun is you fight these people and try to fix the world, 
The problem is once you fix the world, the setting isn't the same setting anymore, and it isn't interesting. Probably. Right. Like, it's maybe interesting to keep playing as how do we work through fixing the world. Like, after... Because it's not like, you know, you blow up uh, uh, the... Whatever, the... You, Julius Caesar's killed, like, the Roman Empire doesn't descend into badness. Uh, there isn't a Roman Empire, right? Like, I mean, it still exists, right? He died, it still existed, right? Like, I mean, Hitler died, it, neo-Nazis still exist. Like, it's not like everything just ends. Right. But it, do, it does create a different setting, and so I... That's sort of a question of metaplot, like, how much does metaplot really matter? And I, this happens with, like, White Wolf, too. It's like, if, if, the, if the setting is so dependent on metaplot, and then you veer off of it like how much is interesting or you change it like what 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 is left that's interesting but yeah like so i was thinking about running an empire or a, a pedal hack game but now it's like i don't know like it's if anything i think it's too soon for me to even look at anything like that because yeah, it's i think that's it's a, a, a reasonable response to it it's a it's just a disturbing uh reveal it's a disappointing reveal uh it's a very unpleasant reveal it's not like uh it, i mean it's not like it happened like 20 or 40 years ago or something and i think really a, a, a big issue with this with this uh setting now is it was kind of talked up as being like oh it's not just you know western europe but now we have like well it's not western europe but it's made by a nazi right so it's like, is that like, is it, is it appealing? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. It doesn't. Boy, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, you know, Polly Kid, I think as a, she said, she was, she couldn't do it anymore, but she also, I think felt betrayed. Oh, how could you not? Right. And like next episode, when we go to Lovecraft, like I was really struck by some of the parallels between like how Lovecraft interacted with some of his protégés and, and fellow writers, and how she describes Parker interacting with, with her, right? Um, that, like, it's difficult to engage with the fact that, like, uh, like you mentioned, like, uh, Parker's wife earlier, right? That, like, people can be really racist and have really toxic views, but it doesn't mean that they're a monster in every single interaction that they have, right? They're not 100% consistent. No one is. Um, but that leaves the rest of us like trying to uh, untangle how to inter interface with their art. Right. And, and that actually ties back into, into is this something somebody might want to run? Because I think a big element of uh, fantasy settings is like, I mean, it's true. Like Western settings is true of like star Wars, right? It's like, there are the good guys and the bad guys. And it's obvious a lot of the time who the bad guys are. Not in every setting, but I think that's an appealing aspect for certain people is that it's e it's like a, an easy an easy thing. It's not right. Elden Ring. You know, it's not Dark, dark Souls in that way. You're right. But uh, it's not, you know, some other things like that necessarily. Not everything does that. But, you know, sometimes people just want to play something and they're like, okay, well... The Empire is evil, right? The Darth Vader and the Stormtroopers, like, they're evil. The Emperor, Emperor Palpatine is, an e is evil. He's the evil mastermind. Uh, 
But sometimes this also creates some weird elements, right? Like with, we look at D&D and orcs and drow and, and various things like that. It's like, what does, you know, what does that represent? How does, how does that work? And so there's a positive and a negative there. And just something I'll mention in terms of Empire of the Petal Throne is that does distort that on a meta level. I think, because if you want to play, I mean, I, I guess, I guess Tecumel doesn't really have that aspect of like the good guys and bad guys so much. Uh, but I think it does become awkward if you are like, I'm going to sit down and have fun with this game, whether that's a video game or whether that's a tabletop role playing game, or even whether it's like a novel or something. And it's like, sometimes you just want to have a comfort, comfortable kind of experience. And it can make it really uncomfortable when it's like, well, the person who created this did some really negative things that I don't like and I don't agree with and I think are really bad. Right. Um, yeah. I think it hits you where you're not expecting it, right? You came home from work. You want to just chill out with your, your RPG session or your TV. And then like you're hit with the fact that like there's these things that were kind of snuck into it. And like, that's not fun for anybody. Right. Uh, but I think like in some ways people are more vulnerable to it in the media that they don't consider particularly political or commentary type. Um, mm -hmm. And so like, that's why we got to talk about it at length in podcasts. Um, but I, I think that's completely understandable. And like, I've, I've played games where I just want to go and like fight some enemies. Uh, totally understandable. It feels bad. Go ahead. Uh, wrote something here. We're looking at an outline. We wrote. You wrote something here about uh, You could. It'd be easier to recommend a problematic f film or movie, but harder to involve yourself with a problematic game. Tell me yeah. about that. Okay. So my thought on that, um, and this ties actually back into when I referenced Chinatown by uh, Roman Polanski, oh, who boy. is uh, big, big content warnings if you research his history. Um, just really bad. But so, like, if you engage with a book or a movie, and you can, I think you can recommend one of those to a friend, but be like, hey, here's the content warnings, and the person who made this is, like, not a great person. But when it comes right. to role-playing games, there's so much of ourselves that we put into it in the form of the characters. It's easier to deal with some of those conversations when you are a, more of a passive consumer. Right. Right. The great thing about role-playing games is that you are an active producer of the story. Everyone at the table is. The drawback of that is it, it makes you a participant and it makes you feel more involved when stuff is maybe not so great. Um, and and it, that's the tragedy, I think, of this one, is that stuff is not great, not because of any fault of people playing Empire of the Petal Throne or Tecumel, right? Like, this is just a bit of context they didn't have that now colors their memory and their experience with those games. Yeah, absolutely. But I say that, uh, and I've run a ton of Call of Cthulhu and Delta Green, both games that some people uh, justifiably consider pro uh, problematic. So we'll talk about that a little bit next time. Okay, yeah. Let's wrap it up. As Ken said, we'll get into these other elements, particularly Lovecraft and some of the other aspects of the fantasy genre as, as a whole. So tune in next time for, you know, further, um, 
aspects of controversy not and this isn't like to promote them again but uh you know just to say like we're we're gonna keep going with this for the next episode so yep yeah and if you if you have strong opinions about where we came down on this uh let us know like legit you can email us at gamemastersprism at gmail.com there's no punctuation uh in the first part uh you can yell at me on twitter as mr underscore doctor underscore spooky uh or you could just message the podcast at at gm's prism podcast that's gms p-r-i-s-m uh and then podcast uh and let us know what you think you can also find us on instagram at game masters prism just the whole word spelled out no uh no punctuation or anything there so yeah, contact us Twitter, Instagram, email, uh, yell at Ken. You can yell at me too. I'm at Sater Elfheim if you know how to spell that on Twitter. Um, and we'll see you next time. And uh, I, I don't know. Keep on rolling the dice. I guess it just it sounds yeah. bad. It sounds normally bad. we say like normally we say keep on rolling the dice. It feels trivial at this point. So like. Keep on thinking about the games. Like it keep, does well, You know, keep your spirits up for real. Um, you know, even though we're talking about controversial topics, it's like don't uh I don't even know. But I I don't have anything I don't know. I don't know. I think I think we can go back to like Indiana Jones. Like when you run into Nazis, you should punch them. <laughs> That's yeah, that's a yeah. Parallel adventuring. Okay. Well, yeah, yeah, that's true. You know, it. That's a good point. We can use fantasy f- worlds to say, like, what if we could? What if it was easier to fight back against the bad guy? And that's kind of what I was pointing out about the good and the bad. But again, there's a double-edged sword to that, perhaps. Uh, and yeah. we'll get into that, and you know, keep up the fight, the good fight, and and all that. We'll yeah. see you next time. See you next time.